Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. New Hampshire has long been the arena for a primary challenger to take a stand against a sitting president. And it looks like we'll get another one of those unique situations in this cycle as former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld is forming a 2020 exploratory committee. The governor is our guest this morning. Thanks Thank for you, being Adam. Governor. Great to be with you. We appreciate your time. So a lot of Republicans think President Trump's doing a good job and they support him and they're, they're going to vote for him for re-election. What's the case that you would make that he has earned a Republican primary challenge? Well, my analysis is the last two years have been unsettling and even wobbly, particularly on the international front. I mean, the, the president's favorite foreign leaders are dictators and despots. He goes out of his way to praise them. And uh, on the other hand, uh, longstanding Democratic allies, some of our closest neighbors and European allies, uh, the president uh, seems to go out of his way to humiliate them, not just criticize, but humiliate them. And that is no way to run a railroad for openers. And you pile on top of that loose talk about using nuclear weapons against North Korea. Loose talk about nuclear weapons is just not a good idea. So on the international front, I think the president has been close to a disaster. Uh, you know, uh, domestically uh, as well, his, his, he seems to be bouncing off the wall. I mean, I think the poor guy's in the wrong place. You know, it takes a certain amount of either uh, integrity, experience, character to execute the highest office in the land. You know, one of the oaths that a president has to take before assuming office is, I will take care that the laws are faithfully executed. When you think about all this stuff, throwing around promises of pardons, uh, getting people to say, I will be loyal to you no matter what happens, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement of the rule of law. You uh, had some strong words at Politics and Eggs for the president, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly uh, Washington Republicans saying there's a Stockholm syndrome uh, going on. How do you know that's not just the evolution of the Republican Party? Well, I think the, the silence uh, from uh, the Republican establishment in Washington in the face of, uh, frankly, some pretty outrageous behavior conduct by the president from time to time makes me think that they've been a little bit cowed. And uh, I think it may be the Stockholm syndrome. They're identifying with the guy and just keeping their mouths shut and not doing anything. That, that's the characteristic of the Stockholm syndrome. You're facing these questions already about the party switch. Uh, you ran on the libertarian ticket in 2016. Republicans want to know they can trust you as a Republican. What's your response? Well, I've been a Republican since I was 18 years old, up until my former fellow Republican governor, Gary Johnson, asked me to run with him on the Libertarian ticket in 16. And I enjoyed that race a lot, and I've enjoyed getting around and meeting more people in that party. And there's plenty of people in that party that I know who could uh, work in the federal government in Washington and do honorable and admirable uh, service. So I don't feel that I've uh, turned my back on them and I'm not going to forget them, but I've been a Republican my whole life. Unlike, I might say, Donald J. Trump, who's been a New York City Democrat almost all of his life. He's been a Republican about as long as he's been president of the United States. But I do believe in redemption, uh, so I'm not criticizing the, Republic, uh, the, uh, the president for that. You can always uh, change your party registration. It's what you do, no matter what party you're in. Uh, and I think I can make a case that, uh, based on my experience, uh, that I could do a better job than the incumbent. What would you do differently <clears throat> if you were president to secure the southern border? Well, I don't think we 
need to be absolutely manic about having an impenetrable 200 mile long border. And I think the reason the president puts so much emphasis on that is uh, it's, uh, it's symbolic. But I do understand that uh, a lot of people uh, in the 16 election felt that, uh, you know, the government and the world had passed them by. And uh, this morning, uh, uh, excuse me, when I spoke at Politics and Eggs, I uh, set out a detailed plan for how we could get those people to get the skill sets they're going to need to get the replacement jobs after artificial intelligence and robotics takes its toll. And hopefully they'll, they'll wind up with higher wages than they had when they came in. That would be speaking directly to the Trump voters. Speaking of wages, what, what do you think about this universal basic income? You have some Democrats starting to talk about that already. You know, uh, I think we do need to focus on uh, the income inequality in the country. I think I say that as a prudential matter. And if the, if the income gets low enough, you can say it almost almost as a moral matter. If people can't support uh, a family of four, uh, you, you got to do something about it. I'm not sure having the government come in and dictate uh, exactly how much everybody is supposed to make, as long as people can get uh, to the point where the working poor have a shot at joining the middle class, that's fine. And, and I I think you can get there uh, without putting the government in charge of everything. Let's shift to foreign policy here. How would you change track from the current Republican president in terms of dealing with Vladimir Putin in Russia? Well, I think, as I say, the president has been uh, just kowtowing to dictators. It's not just Putin. It's, uh, it's Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary and others, uh, Duterte in the Philippines. The more autocratic the, uh, the ruler, the more the president seems drawn to them. Uh, I don't think it's crazy to say we want better relations with, with Russia, but uh, the president has taken that uh, to extremes, like kicking the U.S. press out of the Oval Office and having his summit meeting with Mr. Putin in the Oval Office of the President of the United States with no press present and allowed except for TASS, which is the state organ of Russia. That's just sending a message of contempt to the United States. How about Syria? Do you support the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria? I do. I do. I think uh, the uh, situation in Syria and Afghanistan, uh, you know, we've been there a long time. We've been in Afghanistan almost two decades, uh, and um, I do support uh, a withdrawal there. I, I think asking people to go in and risk their lives uh, for regi regime change when there's no threat to the security of the United States uh, I think I'd be very cautious uh, about that. I mean, you, you read the list of the dead, they're all 23-year-old kids, you know? Sending young men, young women out there to die because you don't, you in the White House or the administration don't like something about a foreign regime, uh, that's not how I would start off. One of those dead on the journalistic side, James Foley, uh, who is from New Hampshire. Uh, Senator Gene Shaheen and others have uh, raised concerns that if the withdrawal is too precipitous, that his killers, uh, who are currently in custody, uh, ISIS killers, uh, could be released or escape. How do you prevent something like that and bring those people to justice? Well, it's never an ideal situation. Uh, but, uh, you know, I know when we went into Afghanistan, the uh, U.S. government was nervous that it might antagonize the Russians and inflame situations, lead to, uh, you know, World War III or resurgence of the Cold War. So they made a call. They had Dewey Claridge or one of the senior people in the CIA call his counterpart in Russia saying, we're thinking of going into Afghanistan. We want to make sure that won't precipitate a crisis in Russian-U.S. relations. The guy almost died laughing he said have a nice time you know you're following the British you're following us it was abject failure in both of our cases have a nice time well we've been having that nice time for 17 or 18 years now 
All right. Well, Governor Weld, it's going to be very interesting uh, to see you out there on the campaign trail. We appreciate you spending time with us, and uh, we'll see where this takes you. Okay. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for your time. Pleasure. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. She's one of several U.S. senators in the conversation for the 2020 race, a no-nonsense New Yorker who has been on the forefront of opposition to President Donald Trump. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand joins us this morning. Thanks Lovely for being here, Senator. to be on your show. So uh, President Trump is going to declare a national emergency over the border, uh, and it looks like Congress uh, will probably sue the president over this and take him to court. How broken is the American system right now when, to make policy, you have Congress, uh, the legislative branch, and the executive branch basically going to court over this, and how do you end that discussion? function if you become president? Mm -hmm. Well, Washington is broken, and it's broken because moneyed interests, the powerful, the elite control everything. And President Trump, unfortunately, has only made it worse. Um, and that's the kind of corruption that I want to end. We actually have to restore democracy to the people. We need a direct democracy. We need to get money out of politics. That's why I'm banning corporate PAC money and federal lobbyist money and not having an individual super PAC. And so if you want to restore that democracy to the hands of the people, you've got to change who's in charge. What President Trump is doing in declaring a national emergency is reckless. It, it is not the appropriate use of a national emergency. There are real em national emergencies. Uh, there are times when we have to come together as a country and and people have to help one another. Um, we've seen it with wildfires in California, we've seen it in flooding, we've seen it with hurricanes across the country. And those are national emergencies. What's happening at the border is something that President Trump is uh, not only calling an emergency falsely, but frightening people. Uh, when I'm traveling around your state and talk to folks about their concerns, when they say I'm worried about the border and I'm worried about terrorists and criminals, that's a fear that President Trump has created. I visited the border. There are children, there are parents, there are families suffering, just literally afraid for their lives, coming from countries where there are gangs, where there is uh, it, massive instability, and they're seeking asylum. And our countries always believe that we are the beacon of light and hope. Immigration has always been a strength. Uh, it's never been a weakness. We've never been afraid of immigrants, and we've never been afraid of refugees in the way that President Trump has created. So to your question, um, this shutdown uh, and this debate, uh, Congress came together. They found a common sense solution to actually invest in border security. I had grave concerns with the bill because it didn't put a cap on where President Trump could spend this money. And so what he's doing when these families come across, he's actually putting them, locking them up in for-profit prisons. Um, companies are running these for-profit prison companies are running these facilities. Uh, one facility for young boys um, on the border, it's in an abandoned Walmart. That's not an appropriate place for unaccompanied minors to be housed. Um, they're here for help and support. And so what he's going to do in his emergency is just keep sending money to these for-profit prisons to run these detention centers and run these facilities that are holding people who just are seeking our help. So to change that <laughs> to your question, um, we need to tell the American people what's actually happening. You used to have different views on immigration. You used to have different views on guns. You were a blue dog Democrat when you were in Congress. How have your views evolved, particularly on firearms, and what restrictions would you approve uh, or sign as president yeah. uh, to prevent gun violence? Well, in my first um, run for office in upstate New York, it was a two-to-one Republican congressional district, quite rural, uh, small towns, small cities, but a lot of rural areas. And 
from that perspective, uh, hunting was part of the culture and the heritage of the region, and we didn't suffer a lot of gun violence. Uh, when I became senator 10 years ago, I recognized that gun violence pervades our state all across the state, whether it's in Brooklyn, whether it's in the Bronx, whether it's in Buffalo, and we have gang violence, serious gang violence. But I met families who suffered from gun violence. When I went to uh, meet with a family in Brooklyn, a, a husband and wife who lost their teenage daughter to a stray bullet that killed her while she was at a party with her friends, I met all her, her friends from her class. And to look those parents in the eye and not say, I will do something to make sure this doesn't happen to someone else, you're not doing your job. So I recognized immediately I had to care not only about ending gun violence, but taking on the NRA because the NRA is corrupted, it is, it is driven by greed, it is largely funded by the gun manufacturers who only care about gun sales, and they truly do. They want to sell assault rifles to uh, teenagers in a Walmart. They want to sell weapons to terrorists on the watch list. They want to sell weapons to people who are so mentally ill or have a violent background or have a criminal record for violence because they're, they're unwilling to have a universal background check. So I support universal background checks. No one should have access to a gun who is not, it would not be safe to be in their hands. Um, we need to ban the bump stocks. Um, we need to ban the large magazines and the military-style assault weapons. We also need an anti-federal trafficking law because a lot of the guns in, that, that come from um, states, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know whether New Hampshire struggles from the same issue, but a lot of guns come from uh, states that have no gun reform rules, and they get sold directly to criminals. And so you have to create a law to crack down on that. And I've written that bill, and I've, I got, the last time I brought it to Congress, we got 58 of the 60 votes we needed. So hopefully the next time we get a vote on that, we will pass it. Democrats like to claim the high ground in the Me Too movement. I'm personally surprised by the number of them that I hear from who are still upset with you over taking a stand against Al Franken mm. uh, when accusations were brought against him. What do you say to those Democrats, particularly here in New Hampshire, who still feel that, uh, quote unquote, you threw him under the bus on that? Yeah, I mean, many people um, are very sad because they miss Senator Franken, but the truth is he had eight credible allegations against him that were corroborated by the media in real time, many of the corroborations at the time they happened. Two of those allegations were since he was in the Senate, um, and the last allegation happened to be from a congressional staffer. And I could not remain silent any longer as a woman who has led a lot of these issues for the past seven years on ending gun, uh, ending uh, sexual violence, sexual harassment, um, and tr valuing women, whether I'm leading the national paid leave bill, whether I'm leading equal pay for equal work, affordable daycare, universal pre-K, ending sexual assault on college campuses, ending sexual assault in the military, changing the sexual harassment rules right now in Congress with Senator Cruz. These are things I'm working on on a bipartisan basis for years. And I could not be silent. And so I just had to say enough was enough. It's not okay. And I couldn't stand by him. Um, his decision is to do, he could have stayed for six months and gone through his ethics committee. He could have sued every woman who made an allegation against him. Those are his decisions. My decision was whether to be silent. And, and as a mom, I have two young boys. I have a 15-year-old named Theo. I have a 10-year-old named Henry. And the conversations we were having at home at the time were really disturbing to me. My 15-year-old said, Mom, why are you being so tough on Al Franken? And I had to say, Theo, you cannot grope a woman anywhere on her body without her consent. You cannot forcibly kiss a woman ever without her consent. And it's not okay for you, and it's not okay for Senator Franken. So if I chose to 
to stay silent for the next allegation and the next allegation or whatever else might have come, I would not be a senator worth her salt who values women. I would not be a mother worth her salt who wants to teach my sons to respect women and value women. So I could not become silent. I couldn't stay silent. And I recognize it's sad for people. And I recognize there's some big donors out there that are angry. That's on them. All right, Senator Gillibrand, we thank you for your time today. Thank you we'll so see you back much. Here again soon. Thank you. Do you know Gomer's Gollies? Golly! 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 Sergeant, I just can't get over it. Get to know Gomer's Gollies on Gomer Pile. Sponsored by Heritage Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, Electric. As a reporter, the bios you get from elected officials can lay out quite the list of distinguished credentials, but the writing rarely grabs your attention. But when you read the opening line for former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper's bio, it definitely piques her interest. A laid-off geologist who started a brew pub. Uh, that long-ago laid-off geologist is here with us today. Governor Hickenlooper, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So that's quite the career arc uh, going from that uh, many years ago, I'm sure, uh, to owning a brew pub, and now you're here in New Hampshire meeting voters. Let's cut to the chase, though. Uh, how soon will you know whether or not you're running for president? I am determined to, to, you know, we've been working on this and talking to people, my wife and I, discussing it. Uh, I'm determined to make sure, you know, in the next month or let's say six weeks, quickly. I mean, our goal has always been sometime before the end of March. And how did you get from there to here? How does a laid-off geologist make it to New Hampshire? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I never ran for student council or class president. I grew up with this. I had thick like the bottom of Coke bottles, thick glasses, and I had acne, and I had this funny last name. I was a skinny kid. I was the last person anybody would have ever thought to run for office, uh, but the miracle of LASIK surgery. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I came out to Colorado as a geologist, and the price of commodities all fell apart, so that our company got sold, everyone got laid off, and I couldn't find a job. I was out of work for a couple years. And you see, you know, when you're out of work for... I don't know, six or eight months, you begin to see a different person in the mirror. You, you look in the mirror and you see someone who, who you don't recognize. You don't have the same confidence. Anyway, I ended up, like a lot of Americans, I reinvented myself. I opened this restaurant that brewed its own beer. And, you know, first three or four years, hard. But then it kind of took off and we opened other brew pubs around the, the, mostly the Midwest. And somehow, fast forward you know, 2003, there was an open mayor's seat. So the, the mayor of Denver was retiring. It's a strong mayor, former governor, very competitive race. And all my customers convinced me that I should be the one that should run, even though I had never been involved in anything, new in anything to do with politics. And the notion was I would bring the common sense of small business back into politics. You know, I understood running a restaurant, what service is all about. And you wrote that into two terms in the governor's office. I'm curious, here in New Hampshire, uh, the legislature is exploring the idea of legalizing cannabis. Having overseen that process as governor in Colorado, what's your advice? So I was against it when, we, when it was first an initiative. I looked at, you know, I, didn't, I was worried about a spike in teenage consumption and the high THC marijuana that they have now can, everybody tells me that if your brain is rapidly growing, it can take a sliver of your long-term memory every time you use it. So I looked at it from that point of view, and I thought, ah, that's not so good, and, and driving while high. There were just all these fears. No one had ever done it before. We were going to be in conflict with federal, the federal government. But you know now we're about five years into it, and those fears haven't happened. We haven't seen a spike in teenage consumption. We haven't seen... Uh, a spike in any consumption except senior citizens. I'll let you make, <laughs> I'll let you figure that out for yourself. Uh, but, and we haven't seen a, a, 
a giant increase in driving while high or more fat traffic fatalities. So I think there's, I look at it now, and, and again, I think each state should make up their own mind. I think the federal government should allow states that choose to legalize it. They should allow them to have banking, which we don't have in Colorado. Uh, they should allow them to, you know, the, not the, the federal laws that make it a felony, sometimes make it a felony offense to have marijuana involved in a crime. Those should get changed. But I do think in Colorado that we wouldn't go back. And after the election, I always said if I had a magic wand and could, reverse, could have reversed that vote, I would have. Now I wouldn't. I'd put that wand back in the drawer and, and, and just say, all right, let's keep going with this and see. I mean, the old system was awful. Think about the number of kids, especially low-income African-American kids, Latino kids, that we sent them, not only sent them to prison, we made them felons. We made the rest of their lives unimaginably more difficult. For what real purpose? We did, I mean, what, what did we win in the war on drugs? Not much. From one green to another, what's your perspective on the Green New Deal? Well, I think uh, I haven't read the whole thing, but I am. Again, I've got a master's in geology. I think I'm the only uh, governor in the history of the country that actually was a professional practicing geologist. Uh, I think climate change is real, and I think we've got to address it now and, and, and in, in dramatic, impactful ways. That There are so many biofeedbacks that could, once they get going, like the permafrost melting, there's a whole ton of methane, they, they believe, trapped in the frozen tundra. Uh, in northern Canada. If that stuff all goes in the atmosphere, then you're, everything just starts making a very bad situation even worse. Uh, I think it's, it's not too late. I think there, you know, in Colorado, we were able to bring the oil and gas industry together with the environmental community. And in the end, 14 months of hard negotiation, but the oil and gas industry was willing to look at, and they enacted a set of regulations that they visit every single pipe and pump and tank uh, each year, they're spending, they spent $60 million that first year, but it was the equivalent of re removing uh, 320,000 automobiles from our roads every year. And that's we've got to do stuff like that in real time, like now. I've heard you had a rule as governor that uh, the name Trump couldn't come up in a meeting because you felt it would derail everything and people would start a parallel conversation. It's a waste of, an, it's a waste of 30, 40 minutes. But if you, if you are going to run for president, chances are at some point, and you're successful, you're going to have to take him on directly. Can an approach like that kind of just ignore him? Can that work if you're going to take him on? Well, it's not a question of I wouldn't ignore him. I mean, obviously, he's going to have a nickname for me. And then I get to say, oh, that's a terrible nickname. I never heard that before. All I heard on the playground was, Poop and Scooper and Chicken Cooper. I mean, there's no nickname. He, the bottom line is he really hasn't done very much. If you, if they, I mean, he gave a huge tax cut that really very few people got to take advantage of uh, and that many are going to have to pay for, right? mainly our kids and our grandkids. Uh, I look at the, 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 the disarray of the world, of all the tariffs and our relationships with our closest allies. NATO has been told basically they don't matter for anything. Uh, I would love to just, you know, I'm not going to attack and, and if he's going to start going crazy on me, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to make fun of it. I'm going to make jokes about it because it's kind of funny. That's, I mean, that's what you do with a bully, right? When I grew up, you got a name like Hickenlooper and you're a skinny kid with thick glasses. You learn how to deal with bullies and you don't punch them back. You kind of repeat what they say, but you twist it a little bit so that the other kids on the playground kind of laugh and the bully doesn't know whether you're laugh, they're laughing at me or laughing at the bully. I think that's, you know, Trump's, he hasn't done anything. Well, certainly it's a unique style that you've got. You won in 2010 and 2014, two of the worst years for Democrats. Yeah. Uh, how did that work? How did you survive in such a toxic environment for Democrats? Well, I, again, I am a Democrat. My, 
you know, my, my grandparents were all Republicans, but my mom was widowed twice before she was 40. So my dad died when I was eight. And she thought government maybe should be smaller, but she thought we had to believe in government. And she raised four Democrats. And I'm a, I'm a Democrat that believes in small business. I think that we're not going to solve anything if we don't have a strong economy and we need small businesses to make that happen. But that we've got to come together and work together to address our uh, address our problems, and I think government is a way to do that. Is, to, is a convener that can help take on climate change or Ebola or, or I mean, look at healthcare. How do we stop the inflation every year? It, whether you're on a, a private exchange or whether you're you know you've got your own independent coverage or maybe you have no coverage, the cost goes up every year. That's something we all have to come together. We all have a shared necessity to resolve these issues. All right, Governor Hickelooper, we'll see you back here soon. You bet. Thank Appreciate you. it. How do you do winter? Outside? Inside? Either way, we've got fresh ideas. Served up hot or cold. You ready? If you're after winter adventures, packed with powder, or ones brewed fresh, looking for action, or a break from it, need a place to chill, or somewhere to warm up, make the season better. With New Hampshire Chronicle, get more out of winter. Congressman Adam Schiff has made a name for himself during this Trump presidency, and the president has given him a nickname too. But as the chair of the House Select Committee on Intelligence, he is now in a position to investigate Russian interference in the 2016 election, an effort that would be parallel to the Mueller investigation. When he was here in New Hampshire last week, we asked him how he planned to move forward without interfering with Mueller's work. We are uh, definitely trying to deconflict our work with the special counsel. Uh, we want to make sure that we get answers to our questions and that the special counsel's office recognizes our independent responsibility. Uh, at the same time, we don't want to take any step that will impair their ability to do justice. Uh, so we, we uh, have those discussions and do our best to make sure that we can both fulfill our missions. And as chairman of this committee, it's safe to say you know things that the public does not know. Do you think the public will eventually know those things as they pertain to the Russia investigation? I do. I, I think this is too big and too important to be swept under the rug. Um, the Mueller report should be made public. Uh, there may need to be redactions for classified information or grand jury material, um, which can be characterized in a different way uh, so as to preserve that. Um, but at the end of the day, the American people have both the right to know and a need to know um, about a foreign power's intervention in our affairs and about any links between that foreign power and the campaign or the person of the president. Do you think we'll see the president's adult children called before your committee to testify? I don't want to go into specific witnesses at this point, but there were certainly a great many witnesses who uh, uh, either didn't come before our committee at all uh, because the Republicans refused to bring them in, uh, or came before a committee but refused to answer questions, uh, and our committee was unwilling to compel answers. Uh, so we are looking at all of those witnesses to try to prioritize them. Joining us now is New Hampshire Democratic Party Chairman Ray Buckley. Ray, thanks for joining us. You bet. So you were there uh, last Monday when uh, Congressman Schiff was here. He says he's not running for president, but sometimes we see this, that uh, candidates of primaries future come during primaries present to kind of dip a toe. What did you think of Congressman Schiff? Uh, I think he's smart. 
I think he's uh, serious and strategic, uh, and he's certainly not uh, coming to play. Uh, that uh, if there is something uh, to any of these issues, uh, he's going to discover them and he's going to do it in a manner that uh, is above reproach. Uh, that uh, he understands the seriousness of his challenge uh, and uh, he's going to make sure that uh, the public ends up knowing one way or another uh, what exactly happened. And it's an exciting time right now for your party. We're about a year out from the first in the nation primary. Let's talk a little bit about the calendar. Uh, there is some, you know, discussion of whether California's early voting could represent a, quote, similar election that would require Secretary Gardner to move the date. Do you see that happening? Do you see us voting in January of 2020? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think that uh, looking at the fact that uh, none of the votes in California are going to be counted. Uh, in fact, uh, they count votes for a month after the election in California. So uh, if it's a close election there, we might not know for uh, until uh, April uh, who actually won the New Hampshire, uh, the uh, California primary. Uh, so I don't think it impacts here in New Hampshire. I think the fact that there's such a large uh, number of delegates that are in play right after the four early states, that it makes uh, campaigning in Iowa in New Hampshire even more important. It's amplifying us in essence. You've been involved in politics here in New Hampshire for a while. I remember you telling me one time that you were at the next stop after Ed Muskie had allegedly mm -hmm. cried or not cried outside of the union leader. So you've been observing this process for some time. Is this still as relevant today as it was back in 1972? Uh, I actually think the New Hampshire primary is more important than it is in 1972. Now, in 72, a uh, majority of the states still uh, had uh, backroom processes to select their delegates. Uh, the impact, and, and we, we have gotten away with a lot of the, uh, away from having caucuses in a lot of the other states uh, post uh, New Hampshire. So it's almost uh, nearly entirely uh, primaries now. Uh, and so uh, doing well uh, in the early states is critically important to uh, any candidate that's not a, you know, a billionaire that's paying their own way. Let's talk about those candidates. We could see 30 or more coming here. What does that mean to have close to three dozen people uh, organizing Democrats and firing up your base? Uh, well, it, it certainly is uh, a challenge that we enjoy. Uh, and uh, what I think is really exciting is really uh, how it benefits the voters. Uh, those uh, who all those uh, hundreds of thousands of Democrats and hundreds of thousands of independents that can vote in the Democratic primary will have an e enormous number of choices uh, so that you're not being forced to vote for one person that you might not entirely agree uh, with or you might not think that person has the exact vision or the right person to express the vision that you believe in. There's uh, multiple candidates of, of all genders, of all ages, uh, ethnicities uh, that will be running. It's the, the diversity is just phenomenal. Right, and sometimes people talk about, you know, they want to get to, you know, 30 to 40 percent in the New Hampshire primary. This time around, it could be very different. And you were talking about this just before we started rolling here, but there are tiers. Yeah. Maybe not Kerman first, second, and third. If you're in the top tier, someone who comes in sixth or seventh could be the story. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, if they're a surprise, if there's somebody that uh, the national media hadn't uh, taken notice of, uh, and they do extraordinarily well, uh, that has certainly been the case uh, with Bill Clinton and, and George McGovern uh, in the past. So, uh, you know, remember Jimmy Carter only got you know 24% of the vote uh, back in in '76. Uh, so, uh, I think this might even be a, a smaller. We we 
could consider that the, the primary, the winner of the New Hampshire primary could be getting less than 20%. And how do you come out of this process with an intact party? So many people in so many different directions. Actually, it's, it's much better when you have a multi-candidate because you're not divided up into two groups. Uh, the, those years that we've had just uh, essentially a one-on-one -on -one race, uh, the, that's what really leaves uh, the wounds. Uh, but uh, there's so many people running that it's not possible for uh, anyone to uh, do anything except be a cheerleader for their particular candidate. All right. Chairman Ray Buckley, right. we thank, thank you for your time. We'll see you back here. You bet. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.